Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday. Your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show, episode 1003-1003. Boy, those are high numbers. <laughs> Thank you for listening all this time. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and I'm coming to you today from Philadelphia. We just held our Creating Wealth seminar, the only one we planned to do this year, yesterday here in Philadelphia. Thanks to all of you who came out for that. That was a fantastic event. And we got such positive feedback on it. So thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to do that. Every one of those events is different, even though they have the same basic structure and outline. You know me, I'm the king of the tangents, right? So I always go on a tangent or a rant about something. (laughs) So uh, anyway, I'm glad you enjoy those. And I uh, surveyed, since we just passed the 1000th episode, I surveyed the audience And about 25% of the audience said they listened to over 500 episodes. So, wow, this show must be interesting to at least some of you to listen to that many episodes. Thank you for doing that. But one person in the room, and I know there are others out there, some of you listening, and and please, by the way, if you are one of those people that I'm about to mention, contact me and let me know what you think at jasonhartman.com slash ask jasonhartman.com slash ask because I'd love to have you raise your hands, mention you on the show and know who you are and know your feedback if you have listened to all 1,002 to this time episodes, 1,000 episodes and uh, Mike in the audience uh, here in Philadelphia yesterday listened to all 1,000 episodes. So, Mike, thank you for listening for so long, and we really appreciate it. We had a father-daughter. The daughter was here at the event, and and she listens to a lot of the episodes, and her dad listens to all of them, and they brainstorm about them together. So I thank you all so much for being such loyal listeners and for also telling your friends, your associates, and even your enemies about the show because they need to know too. (laughs) You know, the old saying, I think it was Abe Lincoln, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, (laughs) right? Today, we saw the Barnes Collection, which is this amazing collection, a private collection of Impressionist art, 
here at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. And there's a big controversy surrounding this incredible multi-multi-billion dollar, that's billion with a B, dollar private collection of Impressionist art. Really an incredible thing. If you want to know more about that, watch the Netflix documentary entitled The Art of the Steel. Well, it's not a Netflix documentary necessarily, but it's on Netflix. I don't know, maybe it is a Netflix. Uh, whatever. Anyway, The Art of the Steel is the name of it. I saw that and I thought, I've got to come and see this collection of Impressionist art. It's incredible. Incredible. So we just finished that and uh, we're going to relax for a while, go to dinner. But I've got a couple of our attendees here from yesterday that wanted to share a few comments. And today, by the way, we have a fantastic guest. Remember I told you last week I had a really good interview? Well, this is it. You're going to hear it today, where we are going to talk about a really unique new idea as to how to solve recessions and cycles in the economy. Uh, This guest today, who uh, wrote a book about the Fed and uh, several other books as well about robotics and automation, we're going to dig in some some really good stuff with our guest today. So you're going to like this interview a lot. I really enjoyed this guest. So he'll be coming up in a few minutes. But uh, some of our attendees from yesterday are here. One of them is Nate, and the other is my mom, who's been on the show before and shared some of her thoughts yesterday at the Creating Wealth seminar about self-management and about preventing tenant turnover, keeping your tenants for a long time, because you know that the tenant turnover is an expensive thing. You want to keep your tenants for a long time, but don't keep them for too long, because if you keep them for too long, that might be a sign that your rent is too low. So remember the old adage that I've talked about, you know, you got to raise the price until the demand falls off. In other words, till you have some degree of vacancy, a palatable degree, but not too much. So uh, that's always a uh, balancing act there. But first, one of our new attendees who hadn't attended any of our events before is Nate, and he's here, and he just wanted to share a few uh, thoughts about the event. What did you think, Nate? Jason, thanks so much for having me. I thought the event was amazing. I thought that I knew a lot about real estate, but coming to your seminar, I realized there's a lot of things that I don't know. And uh, one thing that you did besides teach me a lot about real estate is you inspired me to look beyond where I live and to, you know, kind of shrink down the world and, and make it smaller so that I can invest in places that are further away and get better returns. So I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm excited to be here this weekend. And Again, for me and from all the people I heard there, thanks for doing these events because they're great. Yeah, thank you so much, Nate. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad you attended. And then you will be with us next weekend as well in New York City for the Venture Alliance event. You got the big public seminar, and then you'll be at the smaller mastermind group next weekend. Uh, Any thoughts about uh, this coming weekend in New York City? What comes to mind is the the amazing people that are going to be at that event, so I'm excited to just be around and listen and again learn from people who are high level achievers and uh, the areas of life that they're working in. So basically, I'm really excited for the people that I'm going to meet there. Good stuff. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. And thanks for sharing some of your thoughts about the event. And we had a couple people there yesterday that shared some uh, thoughts about the event with our videographer, uh, Ben, who came out and uh, videotaped. He came down from Baltimore. He actually works for one of the Agora Financial companies. So you've uh, heard many of the Agora Financial guests on the show over the years, including my very favorite financial writer, even though I 
disagree with him about the solution. Uh, most of these Agora guys, I, I don't agree with their solution, but I love their analysis on things. Uh, you know, they're all generally kind of gold bugs and stuff like that. And I'm definitely not a gold bug and I'm not a cryptocurrency bug either. But uh, they do have some interesting thoughts. And I love Bill Bonner's writing. Uh, he, of course, is uh, one of the Agora or the Agora financial founder, and he's been on the show before. So we'll get him back. Uh, he just has a, a great way of writing about stuff and I just love I love his style. So that's good. Yeah, so we'll share those uh, later on a future episode, some of those comments and maybe some tape, well, not tape, but, you know, digital audio files from the event yesterday on the show in the future, uh, just so you can get a sampling of that. Uh, also, my mom was there. She doesn't come to many events, but she's been to several over the years, you know, but uh, not many lately. And uh, mom, welcome back on the show. You've been on a few times before. So what did you think about yesterday? Oh, I enjoyed the seminar very much. I had never attended your actual Creating Wealth seminar before. Oh, oh you haven't been to that no, one? No, no. That was uh, brand new for me. And I also enjoyed the providers from the local Ohio. Yeah, the local market specialists from uh, Dayton, Ohio, and uh, from Florida. So it was very interesting, and uh, it was great to meet all of the attendees from uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah, there were a lot of people from Philadelphia. We had uh, quite a few people from like New Hampshire and uh, and then Minnesota obviously was representing pretty heavily at this event too, which was uh, kind of interesting. People from all over. But, uh, you know, this was our first event in the northeastern United States. Well, I take that back. We did a Venture Alliance Mastermind event a few years back in Newport, Rhode Island and saw the Newport, Rhode Island mansions and stuff. But uh, this was our first sort of public seminar up here. So it was kind of fun to do it. And, you know, Philadelphia, I haven't been to Philadelphia in a long, long time. So it's good to be back here. And the sun is out now. It was raining yesterday and the day before a little bit. But it's beautiful weather now. So we're going to go to dinner at a beautiful rooftop restaurant. That ought to be fun. But um, do you want to share any thoughts, though, about tenant turnover and keeping your tenants? Just some practical advice for our listeners just really quickly about that. I know you shared some great stuff yesterday in the seminar just about self-management. You know, I give you a hard time about being the extreme do-it-yourselfer, but I tell you folks, I am uh, more and more, as you listeners know, uh, recommending self-management of your properties because it's so easy to do nowadays with some of the technologies and tools available to you and and you can do it from a long distance, which is a great, great thing. But I don't know, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but do you have any quick thoughts about that you want to share? You have heard about this tenant, Toodaloo, yeah. the long-term tenant. <laughs> we and- got to explain that to the listeners. <laughs> so my mom was on the show before, and we did this uh, We did this episode where she shared her longest-staying tenant, who's been in a property of hers, a rental property, since 1989. Now, just note how long ago that was. That was right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed, okay? So, and the Cold War ended. So, you know, that's a long time ago, folks. Anyway, this tenant is a truck driver. But, you know, I ask you, I mean, that's a long-running tenant. My longest tenant ever stayed nine years. And interestingly, that was a property I self-managed. I kept the tenant a long time. So for some reason, you know, it seems that some of these property manager properties have more turnover. Now, I don't know if there's a specific reason or conspiracy behind that, but I just know that it's happening. So some of your tips, Mom, on long-term tenant retention, but you also raise the rent every year, right? Talk about that a little bit. 
Yes, it's just simply much more profitable to keep a tenant in your property for a long period of time. Number one, they begin to treat it like their own home. And instead of bothering you for little fix-it items and you're having to pay for them or hire someone to do them, the tenant ends up doing most of that himself. I just can't recommend that you keep tenants for a long term. Well, you can recommend it. You mean you want uh, well, it. Yeah, That's what you meant to say. Yeah. Yes, I recommend it highly <laughs> that, that you try very hard to keep those tenants on a long-term basis. But you must not forget to raise their rent each year. Even though it is only a token amount of $25, this is part of your training that tenant to expect that there will be yearly increases. Okay, good. So you raise rents. That's your policy. You always raise rents every year. Is that pretty much the deal? And you raise it about 25 bucks. Now, There's a, I've talked about that philosophy many times. Okay, calm down. She's motioning at me, folks. I know you can't see that, but she's, I want to talk. Hang on, Mom. Okay. One of the philosophies I've shared with you over the years, listeners, is that you raise the rent, you know, and it depends on the price of the property, the, the amount of rent you're charging. Of course, the base rent is relative to the rent increase, obviously. But, you know, if it's a $1,000 property or a $1,500 a month property and you raise the rent $25 or $50, whatever it is, even if it's a token amount, it's not worth moving for such a small amount of money, right? It's just enough to increase your yield, but not enough to get the tenant to move away. Now, rent increases. Talk about that on a kind of maybe a percentage basis, if you can, rather than a dollar amount. It's more relevant. Okay, uh, sometimes I will just figure the rent at 4%. And if the tenant is really right at the maximum... A 4% increase. A 4% increase. And if the tenant is at the maximum rent for that area, simply give a $25 increase because that's part of letting that tenant know that they will have yearly increases and not have a fit once you increase the rent. So you're kind of training them to expect that. Now, I'm curious, do you charge pet rent? I don't know if I've ever had this conversation with your mom, but I am really recommending, and hey, I love animals. I have a dog. I'm a huge fan of animals, right? But I think that all regular single-family home independent landlords need to get in the habit of following what the institutional landlords in apartment complexes are doing and charging pet rent. People will pay $25 or $30 a month per pet, and it's magic the way that increases your yield. I mean, think about it, folks. That's $360 a year if it's 30 bucks a month, right? That's a significant increase in your yield that someone will barely notice. Yes, I charged pet rent of, it was either 25 or $30. Right now, I don't have anyone I know about that has pets, so that doesn't apply. But I have charged it, and they seemed accepting of it. Yeah. I remember I had a tenant once in one of my properties that I was self-managing, and he had two dogs there. Didn't tell me about either of them, but I caught him because <laughs> the neighbor told me, actually. And then I just back-charged him for all the pet rent, and he was happy to pay it. It was like no problem. He was happy I didn't kick him out, I think, so for violating the covenant of the lease. So, yeah. And by the way, let me just address that for a minute because someone asked me about that question last week. The lease, you know, everyone knows 
that you can kick someone out of a property, you can evict them for not paying the rent. That's sort of obvious. But there are other issues in the lease that you can kick them out for. And one of our clients thinks that, you know, the tenant may be doing other wrong things in the property. And those are covenants of the lease. You can also evict someone. You can start eviction process for violating a covenant of the lease. So say, for example, you know, they have an animal there and they didn't disclose it to you. Uh, Say, for example, they're doing something, God forbid, doing something illegal. You know, maybe they're doing drugs in the property now. Look, marijuana is legal in a lot of places now. The trend is going to be that it's going to be nationally legal probably. But, you know, other drugs, more serious drugs, obviously, right? Say they're having big parties and they're getting noise complaints all the time. You know, these are things that could fall under covenants of the lease, obviously. And you can also evict people for that or you can sanction them for that or negotiate with them for that. Uh, So, you know, remember, there's more to it than just paying the rent. You have more power than you think, landlords. Uh, So keep that in mind. Uh, Another tip I wanted to share with you that my mom brought up recently, one of my properties in Texas that I purchased a long time ago needs a new fence. I've owned this property for maybe 14 years and the fence is looking pretty shabby. You know, it's just a cheap wood fence, right? My mom says, Jason, you know, the neighbors have to share the cost of the fence with you. The property manager didn't bother to think of that, but uh, mom did. And I thought, I didn't even think of that. Why didn't I think of that? Of course they have to share the cost. And so uh, now the property manager went and got one of the three neighbors that share the fence. You know, there's three sides of the fence in the backyard that are shared with neighbors. They got one of the neighbors to share the cost of the fence. That neighbor would contribute $644, and I would pay $644, and that would replace one of the three sections of the fence. So I said, Mom, okay, what do I do now? My ultimate self-manager mother, who's pretty good at getting deals on stuff. She says, Jason, what you do is you collect that $644 from the neighbor and you replace only the one section of the fence. (laughs) I thought that's a pretty good idea because it's going to make the other two neighbors jealous that there's a nice new fence on that one section and that's going to motivate them to contribute so we can replace the other two sections. Look, I want to replace the fence as the landlord. I don't mind spending the money. It's not that big a deal. It'll last a long time. We'll probably put in a nice vinyl fence that'll basically last forever and really upgrade the property. So it's fine with me to do it. But again, the neighbors have to contribute half the cost for the section they share of the fence. You know, they're getting half the benefit. Why should I pay for it all? So mom, thank you for that advice. I liked it. You're very welcome, Jason. (laughs) Okay. Hey, we got a really good guest today. We'll get through half of the interview today. We're going to talk about some really interesting stuff about the concept of recessions and cycles in the economy. This is a fascinating interview. I think you'll really enjoy it. Also, if you want to join us, we have a couple more people that have joined us for the Venture Alliance next week in New York City, or I should say this coming weekend. If you want to join, go to VentureAllianceMastermind.com and check out the Venture Alliance Mastermind group. You can go to JasonHartman.com and purchase a one-time guest ticket for that, or you can reach out to anywhere through our website and contact uh, an investment counselor, and they'll help you with that. So more to come on that. And here is our guest.
It's my pleasure to welcome John Tamney to the show. He is director uh, for the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, a senior economic advisor at Teodor Research and Trading, an editor of Real Clear Markets, best-selling author of Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics, and also Who Needs the Fed, What Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Tell Us About Money, Credit, and why we should abolish America's central bank. But his new book is entitled The End of Work, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You One You Love. We got a lot to talk about today. John, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's good to have you. These are great topics. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, what Taylor Swift, Uber, and robots can tell us about money, credit, and why we should get rid of the Fed. I mean, Make the connection for us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it's a surprisingly easy connection. Um, Several years ago, my wife and her friends went to a Taylor Swift concert in Washington, D.C. at National Stadium. Afterward, as you can imagine, there was a rush to the exits to get home. And so if you wanted to ride the metro from that stadium, it was going to take at least two hours to get on one. Cabs were non-existent. And so my wife and her friends tapped the button and Uber showed up. Uber charged four times the going rate, surge pricing, and my wife was home within a half hour. And so it was a reminder right there that even if you take the Fed seriously, its interest rates are wholly backwards. The Fed during periods of economic distress pushes the rate that it targets down to zero. Well, why on earth would it do that? That's the equivalent of Uber during mass demand for its drivers setting the rate as low as possible. Well, if it did that, there wouldn't be drivers at Nat Stadium to take my wife and her friends home. The fact that they had surge pricing is what brought the drivers to the stadium. Sure. The Fed and its infinite wisdom does the exact opposite of what it should do. It tries to push Mm, the cost of credit down at a time when you want it to rise to a level that brings in savers who will be there for those who need credit. Ah, Interesting. Interesting. You know, I haven't heard anyone express that before, and maybe you haven't either, and that's why you thought of it. It's an interesting hypothesis because, you know, when we look at the supply and demand curve of anything in any market, and money is just another commodity, credit is just another commodity like gold, silver, concert tickets for Taylor Swift, one of my favorites, whatever, right? So you're right. It makes sense. But the way the Fed would seem to view it, John, is that they would say, well, we need to pump money into the economy. And since they don't really play by normal rules, they play by fiat. They can create money out of thin air and adjust the abundance of credit and money supply. Money supply and credit supply are kind of the same thing, but not exactly. By just lowering reserve ratios or creating money electronically out of thin air. I mean, you know, we used to say printing, but they don't even print anymore. Printing is now too much of a burden, (laughs) running a printing press. So it's not really the same, is it? Because they don't really really play by the rules that Uber plays by, do they? Ultimately, they do. The Fed can't change reality. The Fed cannot increase credit. They can certainly distort it it for a while. (laughs) Ah, My take is that the Fed's ability to distort much of anything is overstated. 
Let's never forget that when you borrow dollars, you're not borrowing dollars. Uh, my argument in the book is that money and credit are totally different. Mm -hmm. You're borrowing dollars for what they can be exchanged for. You're borrowing access to trucks, tractors, computers, desks, chairs, buildings, most important of all, labor. The Fed cannot increase what it is you're seeking when you seek credit. And so my take is, okay, assuming the Fed were to print trillions and trillions of dollars, it's not going to change the on-the-ground reality. Just because the Fed prints dollars doesn't mean that people are going to release their trucks and tractors to those who are in need of resources. And I would just add that the Fed can't pump money into the economy in the first place. Let's look at, at quantitative easing. The Fed tried to do that, and the reality is that tens of billions of dollars, quote, exited the United States on a monthly basis. Let's, let's look at it on a local level. Let's say the Fed dropped $10 billion into the center of Baltimore. That money would exit Baltimore as quickly as it arrived, and it would because there's no economic growth taking place in Baltimore. Conversely, let's say the Fed drained all the banks in Silicon Valley of the money if it raised the reserve requirements substantially. It would be utterly meaningless simply because people around the world are lined up trying to have exposure to Silicon Valley. And so my take in the book is that we vastly overstate the Fed's importance. It's dealing with antiquated banks that are no longer major players in, in the credit space. And so sure, I'd love to see it end. But even if it doesn't end, I think market forces are ending the Fed for us. Well, listen, you're not going to get any argument from me in principle. I, I agree with you. And I like what you're saying. I do think, however, uh, you know, obviously, the ivory tower theory and practice are two different things. And I'm not saying you're coming from the ivory tower, because I don't think you are. You, I mean, this is popular economics we're talking about, right? But look, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that the Fed by managing interest rates, massively influences markets. I mean, look at what's happened over the past several years coming out of the Great Recession in the housing market, in the stock market. I mean, the money is just flowing. And, you know, it's finding places to go. I, I admit that there's a, you know, I like uh, it more. Hang on, John, let me give you a little more. Let me give you a little more to chew on. You argue with me all you want about it. No problem. But one more thing to chew on. I'd liken it more like to pumping oneself up with caffeine or going out and partying and having a hangover the next day. Of course, the crash is always present when you do that, but you definitely can stimulate for a little while, right? Okay, go ahead. I really question that. Okay. I, I well. do, and I question it in, in the book. If quantitative easing is what powers markets forward, well, then let's explain Japan because They've been well, conducting quantitative yeah. easing in I'll Japan for 30 years it. now yeah. with, with, with no corresponding market yeah. rally. I, I can so explain that, by the way, if you want me to, but go ahead. <laughs> well, why, why, why didn't it work in Japan, but it worked in the U.S.? Yeah, my theory about Japan is Japan has a wholly different problem. Number one, of course, it doesn't work as well for anybody else because they don't have the reserve currency in the bully pulpit like the U.S. does. But that aside, Japan has a demographic problem. Japan is very insular, you know, there's really almost no immigration, okay, and they're not having any kids, and you can't build an economy yeah, on that. That's a did, country that's extinct. Economy, yeah, go ahead. Would you agree that this demographic problem is exponentially better than the one after World War II when the country was literally destroyed? 
that was a major demographic problem yeah. that the economy yeah. boomed. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and well. I just, I, I think that it's so easy to make, I think it's more ivory tower to say that, well, we've got the printing press here. Markets respond to all this. Sure they do. Yeah, they address are, for it. It's yeah. not as though investors are stupid. Yeah, no, they're and not. so I hear, well, yeah, but see, the Fed kept interest rates low, and so there's a flight into yield. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Funny how that didn't happen in Japan. And let's never forget that Japan is still a major economic force. Oh, of course. Oh, but see, the Fed, the Fed created $4 trillion. It had to find itself somewhere. Well, it didn't. It borrowed $4 trillion from banks. But for a buyer excited by QE to enter the market, by definition, a seller must exit it. Mm-hmm. It's not as though implicit in this QE narrative that the Fed uniquely among all central banks had this ability to pump up stock market. It ignores all the times that the Fed couldn't pump up the stock market. But implicit there is that there are only buyers. No, there are sellers too. Furthermore, markets price in the future. If, in fact, the Fed had been pumping up stock markets, logic dictates that when the Fed announced well before 2014 that it would eventually seize quantitative easing, that markets would react to it and sell off for good, except for they never did. I I just – I find the QE story so easy to discredit. I've presented my argument in front of the best investors in the world, including Cliff Asnes at AQR, and I've never been questioned because – it's not a very compelling argument when you think about it. Well, I, I only think, you know, listen, I, I don't want you to get the impression I'm disagreeing with you because it, in philosophically and in principle, I definitely agree with you. I'm just saying that people are creatures of instant gratification. You know, they know that it's a big game and it's a big sham, of course, you know, and so do other countries that hold our debt. They know it's, you know, they know we're destroying the value of our debt with inflation uh, ultimately. But, but you know, they play it in the small time horizon, right? They play these little, well, you know, and then and then if it's a small time horizon, it would show up in 30 year treasuries. I beg to differ. I've spent doesn't make me an expert, but I've spent lots of time in China. And, and you talk to the government officials there. They point out that we're still not a rich country. Mm-hmm. We expect that money to be paid back. The idea that the rest of the world is in on some hey, wink, wink, nod, nod that, uh, oh, yeah, sure, the treasuries are worthless, but we'll hold them. I don't find that compelling. I don't find it realistic. I'm not defending the debt. I'm not defending government spending. I'm a libertarian. But the idea that the rest of the world would sit there and just buy what is claimed to be worthless defies common sense. The reality is, is that the U.S. Treasury is backed by the most productive people on earth. We can talk about the Fed and all this other stuff and all these horrible things going on in the world, but the reality is the 10 most valuable companies in the world are based in the United States. Right. Yeah. Uh, We attract more investment than any other country in the world. People risk their lives trying to get to this country. Yeah. Is it any wonder that the rest of the world wants to hold U.S. debt? Yeah, we well, want to talk about the dollar and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's the, not the, pretend that this is worthless. No, you're absolutely right. The right question to ask is the one I always state. It's compared to what? 
you know, yes, the U.S. has all these things and all this monkey business, but, you know, compared to what, everybody's playing this game, okay? Every country does this stuff, you know? Couldn't agree more. Okay, so uh, on the Japan thing, though, post-World War II, I'm no expert on that, but my impression would be that, hey, number one, we were rebuilding Japan. Number two, we were moving into this baby boom time. Their exports, they were exporting all these cheap little products. Then the auto industry, the Japanese auto boom came along and... You know, that's, I don't know, it's a, it's complicated, but it's kind of Yeah, no, I, but I you just know. think it's dangerous to say that was a much bigger demographic difficulty. And to pretend that, okay, so the way to fix a demographic problem is to go to war and have your country destroyed, so you have to rebuild it. I don't think you oh, believe that. that's I, not a good idea. Really I'm just saying it happened. Oh, okay, you know? okay, <laughs> okay, so that it happened right. did not improve Japan. Japan would be exponentially better off today, as would the U.S. have been, had we not been in that war in the first place. I really think it's dangerous to make an argument about, oh, yeah, well, the war saved Japan. Japan is a major, major economy. And implicit in the demographic argument is that somehow Japan's an island. No, Japan interacts with the rest of the of world, course they do. just yeah. as U.S. producers interact with the rest of the world. It would be an interesting argument if Japan didn't trade or import or export with anyone else, but that's just not true. Yeah, of course, of course. They're not isolated. I mean, they're just, in terms of their immigration policy and the, the yeah. birth rate, uh, that's all. But And I wasn't saying and, that war was rate, good for Japan. I'm, I'm not, war is the never good. The highest birth yeah. rates in the world are the poorest countries, and the countries with the lowest birth rates get the most investment. Yeah. And so I, I just think the demographic argument is, again, an exciting one that excites people who think that there are crises coming, but please. Yeah. To spend time in Japan is not to spend time in a declining country. If that were true, you'd see a massive capital outflow. Markets aren't this stupid. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Good points. Well taken. Points well taken. I mean, you know, if I had Harry Dent on you know, here, he'd be arguing with you, of course. You know, you know the arguments. So you've heard them all. Yes. Uh, okay. But listen, I want to switch gears. I want to just finish this topic, though, with... So during recessionary periods, it sounds like your thesis is that the Fed, or, well, the Fed should go away, but the marketplace should just raise interest rates, then more people would come in and want to loan money, and the lending of that money would act as a natural stimulus for the economy. Is that a proper uh, analysis? Oh, yeah. For, for the just Surge pricing on money. Look, we should have surge pricing yeah, surge, on money. Well, surge on pricing on credit, you know, money is... Look, Mexico could lend the peso, but it wouldn't mean a whole lot. You know, the the point is, is that credit is always going to find its level. And so the last thing you want to do is try to artificially lower the cost of it. Now, my book argues is look throughout the U.S. and we act as though the Fed doesn't exist. Credit is so expensive in Silicon Valley that if you want to start a business, you're going to give up a big portion of it to a venture capitalist, and then you're going to give even more of it up to uh, potential employees in the form of stock options. Credit's so expensive in, in Hollywood that even the best movie producers are turned down well over 90% of the time. Donald Trump is our president for decades after the early 90s. He couldn't get a loan from a U.S. bank to save his life. My point is, is that while the Fed's off in Never Neverland trying to set a zero rate and pretending, oh yeah, there's now easy credit, in the real economy, we thankfully act as though the Fed doesn't exist because if the Fed did have control over us, 
we would be in perpetual decline simply because who would lend at artificially low rates? And so in the real economy, rates are set by the markets. Thank goodness they are. If the Fed were a fraction of as powerful as we thought, as people thought it was, we'd be a very poor country. Interesting. Okay. So the way the Fed looks at that equation, though, is they say we need to pump money in. So we need to artificially, admittedly, make rates lower and that pumps the money in. You say, let the market decide. And if you want money, pay a surge price because you need it more and there's less supply of it because people are reining in their horns. So you should pay more for credit and then there will be more credit. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, well, it, yeah, of course. And, and, but, and that is what's happening. Implicit is that, that when a recession hits, suddenly credit's easy. No, surge pricing takes place. The Fed's over here decreeing zero rates, but no one borrows for zero. I mean, Apple's the most valuable company in the world. It still pays 3% to borrow. Small businesses in a recession are still going to be shut out of the credit markets. The Fed is this entity dealing with banks that just aren't very big players in credit in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And, and so in the real world, credit costs what it costs. And mm -hmm. so the Fed pumping up the money supply. Oh, please. Is it, it's bogus. Where can it pump up the money supply? If it tried to shrink it in Silicon Valley, market actors around the world would, would run roughshod over that within seconds. Yeah, just yeah. the same, the Fed could put billions into West Baltimore tomorrow, and that money would disappear instantaneously. Money flows to its highest use, so do resources. The notion that the Fed's a big player is defied by common sense. If it were, it could fix Baltimore tomorrow, yet Baltimore is still perpetually recessed. In Silicon Valley, well, banks aren't players in Silicon Valley in the first place, but the Fed can't change the on-the-ground reality in either place. Right, right. Yeah. Dear listeners, we can tell our guest today is not a fan of Baltimore. <laughs> so, yeah, but I agree. No, I, I'm fully a fan. I just don't think that the Fed, the Fed can't change it. The yeah, Fed right. can't change Cairo, Illinois. The Fed cannot change <laughs> Detroit. Uh, yeah. uh, Stockton, California. Sure. Can't. Yeah. In my book, I, yeah, yeah. I make the Detroit argument, too. Fed wants to drop billions into Detroit, it will disappear instantaneously because no business is going to expand based on a money drop. Yeah. Money always flows to its highest use. The Fed can't change it in a city, state, or country. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is why central planning doesn't work anywhere. Anywhere it's ever been tried, it really doesn't work. It only works around the margins, you know, it's, uh, you know, and it's t always temporary. Helicopter Ben, are you listening? <laughs> so Ben Bernanke, of course, is who we're referring to. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.